You're listening to Spirit and Truth, a no-nonsense biblical look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This teaching series was delivered live at the Redeemer Bible Fellowship in Medford, Oregon. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at RedeemerMedford.org. That's RedeemerMedford.org. Well, we continue on in our sermon series, uh, Spirit and Truth. This is by, at least what my notes tell me, part 15 of that series. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about the spirit and the subject of prayer. The spirit and the subject of prayer. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Our text this morning is going to be verses 26 and 27, but as always, we want to read them in context. And so... I will invite you to read from verse 18 with me through to verse 27. Romans chapter 8, from verse 18 through to 27. Romans chapter 8, from verse 18 through to 27. Normally I invite you to read with me, but we're having a technical issue, it looks like. So I'll just read our text this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18 and reading through to verse 27. If you would stand with me out of reverence for God's word, I would appreciate that. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, reading through to verse 27. As always, brothers and sisters, these are God's words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, The Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Once again, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Let's pray together, ask for God's help, and then we will dig into his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we would ask that as we think about the subject of prayer and the relationship of the Holy Spirit to prayer, we pray that you would help us, that we would not view this through the lens of our own experience, that we would not view this through the lens of 
what we've been taught and what we've been told, but we would allow your word to wash over us, to renew our minds, to provide us with the freedom and the joy that only your word can bring. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said this morning, we're talking about prayer and the Holy Spirit's relationship to prayer. If I can make a confession to you this morning, um, I hope you've gathered by now that I'm somebody who is brutally honest, even if it doesn't always make me look good. If I can be honest this morning, I almost didn't want to preach this sermon. I wanted to kind of skip to the next one in this series. I wanted to kind of bypass this one. Because if I'm painfully honest with you, brothers and sisters, preaching about prayer is one of the hardest things in the world. It, it really is. You may think, why on earth would that be the hardest thing to preach about? Let me explain. Preaching about prayer is really hard because there's a lot of, I try not to throw this word around a lot, but I have to in this instance. There's a lot of legalism that surrounds the subject of prayer. Almost, let me put it like this. It, there's often a belief when we talk about prayer that you have to pray in a particular way for God to hear you. Think about it. Maybe if you, because uh, I grew up in church, so I've heard this a bunch. Maybe this wasn't your experience, and I'm really glad it wasn't. But oftentimes, I've heard people talk about prayer, and when they do, they make it sound as though, like, prayer is this, there is this particular formula to real praying. You know, you have to have a particular amount of emotional fervor. You know, you've got to use the right words, but, you know, and this is a debate in some people's minds. To me, it's not a debate at all. The scripture doesn't address it. But, you know, heaven forbid that you should, for example, write out your prayers. No, no, no. Never write out your prayers. They always have to come from your heart. But you have to say the right things, but don't think about it. You know, you should be able to just do it on the spot. Right amount of fervor, you've got to use the right words. It's got to be the right length, which almost invariably means if you pray longer, then the, your, your prayers are much more holy. They're much more sanctified than normal. If you don't do any of that, well, you're not really praying. I mean, yeah, you're you know, speaking to God. And you may be really sincere, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. You may be really honest, but you're not really praying. And honestly, when I hear that, I don't blame a lot of Christians for checking out when we talk about this subject of prayer. Why wouldn't you? Like I said, legalism is not a word I like to throw around. I think sometimes things get called legalistic that really aren't. That is a subject for another time. But when we say stuff like, you know, God won't hear you unless you pray like this. Lots of people pray, but they're not really praying. I, I have to put it to you that when we say stuff like that, we've actually failed to reflect the heart of Christ when it comes to our praying. In fact, let, let's see what Jesus himself says about prayer for a moment. This is we kind of introduced this subject this morning. Keep a finger here in Romans 8 or a ribbon or a piece of paper. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Typically, we go to Matthew 6 for what's commonly called the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer. But before the Lord's Prayer, I think there's a section in Matthew 6 that often doesn't get talked about too much. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Matthew 6 and verse 5, Jesus says, 
whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And this is what Jesus defines as what the hypocrites do. He says, you shouldn't pray like them. Don't be like them. Because they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. Can I pause and say, do you know that Jesus doesn't give a lot of specifics about emotional fervor, the words you use, the length? He doesn't say any of that. He says, don't be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corner and want everyone to see them praying, who make a big song and dance about how spiritual they are. Don't be like them. Instead, go pray in private. (laughs) And your father who's in secret, who sees in secret, excuse me, will reward you. Another instruction Jesus gives, verse 7. When you pray, don't babble. And the word, interesting, that's translated babble there, is literally, it's a nonsense word. It actually doesn't mean anything. It's almost as though Jesus literally babbles. (laughs) He says, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus spends no time on all the things we often think make for powerful praying? His emphasis is on the heart when we come to pray. Don't pray to be seen. And don't come to, and I think the reason why Jesus mentions this, you know, the the Gentiles do with their long prayers. Well, their idea was you need to kind of almost beg the gods to hear you. You need to kind of, you see this in the Old Testament. Then remember the story of Elijah? The, on, if you don't know the story, there's a story with Elijah. There's 400, I believe, 450 prophets of Baal. It's one man versus 450. Totally outnumbered. But they basically get together, and there's supposed to be this showdown to determine who is the real God. And so the prophets of Baal, you know, all turn up, 450 of them. And Elijah's like, we don't even need to toss a coin to see who starts. You guys start. And so they start, and what does the text tell us if you know that story? From morning till evening, they're crying out. They're literally slashing themselves. It's also one of the funniest texts in all the Bible because Elijah at one point is like, you know, pray louder. Maybe he's asleep. <laughs> pray louder. Maybe he's, the text actually says this in 1 Kings, maybe he's relieving himself. That's how the Gentiles prayed. They felt like you have to pray really long and do all of these hyper-emotional things to be heard. And then Elijah steps up, prays one prayer, which in, if I remember the text correctly, is literally half a verse. And God answers. And I think Jesus is pulling on that and saying, listen, you don't need a multitude of words, neither do you need to be loud and showy for prayer to be effective. You need to know the God that you're praying to. If you know the God that you're praying to, you won't find yourself constantly not praying. Turn me to Luke 11. Jesus has a few more things to say about prayer. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And it's interesting, in Matthew 6, he gives what we call the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer. I prefer to call it the model prayer or the pattern prayer. He, he, he gives that prayer, but in Matthew, he gives teaching about prayer first and then gives it. In Luke, if you notice, verses 1 through 4, he gives a slightly abbreviated version of that. But verse 5 is what I want to focus. 5 through 13, Jesus says this. He also said to them, so he's just given them the model prayer, the pattern prayer. And then he says, 
He also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't give up. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Again, I point out, does Jesus put preconditions on asking and receiving? No. I think there are other texts you can go to, but can I boil them all down into one sentence? The precondition to answered prayer is a believer who is walking in the will of God. The end. <laughs> he says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, if you being a parent, I begin to realize this with my own son, you know, I really would move heaven enough to give my son whatever he needed. And I'm not a perfect parent. If I being an imperfect parent, evil in comparison to the goodness of God, if I were willing to do that, how much more would our Heavenly Father? That's the heart of Christ that's reflected when we talk about prayer. And this morning, I, I, my real aim is that I want us to look at God's Word and to gain a heart for prayer that is fueled by the Spirit, not so much by the tradition and expectations of men. We've spent a good deal of time in Romans chapter 8, if we turn back there, already in this series. You know, it really is the best of the best of Paul's teaching on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, we're going to keep coming back to Romans chapter 8. In your study guide this morning, I've given you a simple outline for Romans chapter 8. The, the theme of Romans 8 is freedom through the Spirit. And in particularly, in particular, excuse me, you may remember this. Paul gives us three dimensions of freedom that we have through the Spirit. So verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8, the Spirit frees us from the damnation that sin brings. There's a condemnation that sin brings that we should be rightly under, but we're freed from that through the Holy Spirit. And then verses 12 to 27, not only are we freed from the damnation that sin brings, we're freed from the dominion that sin exercises. So in our lives, we are no longer characterized by our sinfulness. We're no longer characterized by our being given over to the flesh, but we walk in the Spirit. And then verses 28 to 39, the Spirit frees us from the defeat that sin threatens. Because the temptation is to look at the circumstances of life and say, oh, because of my ongoing battle with sin, I, I, I'm not going to make it. And Paul says, no, actually, you will. We're freed from the defeat that sin kind of threatens on us. 
So those are the sort of three dimensions or three movements in Romans chapter 8. Well, our text this morning is at the end of that second movement. It's really kind of a hinge moving into that third part. In particular, verses 18 to 27, if you want to kind of move in a little closer, verses 18 to 27 really focus on the theme of hope. Did you notice as we were reading how many times the word hope came up in verses 18 to 27? That's the theme of this section. In particular, how we can have hope when it seems that sin's dominion is as strong as ever, especially when we're going through suffering. If I can can paint some of the backdrop so that we can kind of get the most out of this section this morning. In verses 18 to 22, Paul says we can have hope because of the promise of a new creation. Do you see that there in verse 18? He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. He goes on and mentions that creation, verse 20, is groaning. Verse 22, excuse me. That it's groaning, it's suffering under the weight of sin's dominion. But Paul says, that's not the end of the story. We have hope because there is a new creation that's coming. And as the sons of God, we will be a part of it. So we have hope because of the new creation, verses 18 to 22. But we also have hope because of the indwelling spirit, verse 23 to 25. You know, suffering has this tendency, if we're not careful at times, to trap us in a vortex. You know, things are bad. So that means God must not love me. You know, where did I go wrong? What do I need to do? Oh, things are so bad. God doesn't. And you're just constantly going round and round and round in this vortex, as it were. But when that temptation hits, we need to rest, as it were, our weary head on some gospel truths. And Paul gives them to us in verse 23 to 25, the fact that we've been given the gift of the Spirit. He's kind of the advance on God's work in us. Yes, we are waiting for our full adoption as sons at the resurrection, but we've been adopted in the here and now. We are sons of God right now. So yes, creation groans, and yes, we groan too at times, but Paul, as it were, says, brothers and sisters, it's okay. It's okay because here's the, here's the thing. You are loved with a father's love. You're part of the family right now. And so we have hope in the promise of a new creation, We have hope because of the indwelling of the Spirit who reminds us of our adoption, that we have been brought into the family of God. Well, all of that brings us to our text this morning. Here's the big idea. If if you don't remember anything else I have to say this morning, here's my big idea in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words, nine words. Here's my big idea in nine words. The Spirit is given to help us in prayer. That's it. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. The Spirit is given to help us in prayer. And in particular, as we look at verses 26 and 27 this morning, I'm going to say that there's a lot for us to, there's so much here for us to learn from and to be comforted by. This morning, I want to particularly focus on two truths that ought to comfort and energize us as we pray. There's two truths I want us to focus on. I'll try not to be long, but we'll see how this goes. The first of them is this this morning. We have to get realistic about our weakness in prayer. 
We have to get realistic about our weakness in prayer. That's the first part of verse 26. If we're going to avail ourselves of the help that God wants to give us in prayer, we have to get realistic about our weakness in prayer. Paul starts by saying, verse 26, in the same way. Well, the question is, well, what does he mean when he says in the same way? Well, if the theme of the section has been hope and the means by which we receive hope, well, Paul's continuing on that theme. Here's another way in which the Christian receives hope in the midst of suffering. Just as God gives us hope through the promise of a creation renewed, and he gives us hope through his spirit who lives in us, in the same way, Paul says, the spirit also helps us in our weakness. The word that's translated helps here is an unusual word. It, it's one of those, I won't say a hand, more than a handful of words, but there are a number of words in the New Testament that only appear in one place. If I can give you a fancy term that theologians use to describe those terms. It's called a harpax legomena. What on earth does that mean? Simply, a word that appears only one time. This is one of those words. That's not a massive sample size. Typically what you do if you want to understand how a word is used in the original languages, you kind of see how it's used everywhere else, and that can usually give you a hint or you look at context art similar as to how the word is used. Don't have that option here. How do we figure out what this word helps means? Well, thankfully, what we typically do is, not only can you look at the New Testament, but the New Testament wasn't written in a special language. It was written in the common language of the day. So how did other people use this word? Well, that kind of helps. When you look outside of the New Testament, this word was used with the idea of laying hold on something with someone else. It speaks to the idea, there's a playwright who uses this word, and he uses it to tell the story of a soldier who needed help lifting a log of timber, and he's unable to do it by himself. But another soldier comes, and he uses this word, to basically help him to move this piece of timber. It carries the idea of assistance with a task that is greater than one person's strength. Assistance with a task that's greater than one person's strength. If I can pull over on the Solomonic Highway, as it were, for a moment. Like I said, we have to get realistic about our weakness in prayer. And part of getting realistic is recognizing that prayer is hard work. Amen? I think one of the worst things we do in churchianity. Churchianity is the word I use to differentiate church people stuff at actual Christianity. One of the things that we do in, worst things in my opinion, in churchianity, is making prayer look and sound like it's easy. If it was easy, if it was really easy, why would Paul tell us that we need help with it? The very fact that Paul has to tell us that we need help, assistance, quite literally a hand for heaven's sake, is because, wait for it, prayer is actually hard. (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest, I have no time for super Christians who kind of make it sound like the spiritual life is the easiest thing in the world. You're like, I never struggle. Hey, how's things? You know, I'm blessed and highly favored. Like, come on. Like, no. (laughs) Like, never have a problem. You never struggle with anything. Life is just, yo, why complain on easy street? I mean, Jesus knew prayer was hard. That's why, did you notice it when we read it in Luke 11? 
Jesus doesn't roll his eyes when his disciples come to him, Luke 11, and say, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. There's a number of times where Jesus, as it were, kind of rolls his eyes and says, no, seriously, I have to teach you this again. Not when it comes to this. I wonder why. Maybe it's because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all know that prayer is hard. Have you ever wondered why the Bible is filled with so many encouragements to pray? Pray without ceasing. Ask it, it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. James chapter 5. The prayers of a righteous person have great power in their effect. 1 John 5. If we ask anything in accordance with his will, he hears us. God knows we need all the encouragement and help that we can get. If he knows that, can I pause and say that maybe we would be better served in helping brothers and sisters who are struggling with prayer if we acted like prayer was actually hard and we got it? Like I said, we need to get realistic about our weakness if we're going to pray in the Spirit. And Paul's very specific about what our weakness is. Did you catch that in verse 26? He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. Paul is specific in saying that our weakness in prayer is less about the character of our prayers and more about the contents of them. Our problem is not so much that we don't know how to pray. It's more often than not that we don't know what to pray. Remember the theme of this section? It's hope in the face of challenges, hope in the face of suffering. When you're in that maelstrom, that vortex, when you're kind of going down the downward cycle, sometimes words fail you. Sometimes it's very hard to even know what to say. It's so bad, I've lost words. And in those moments, our inadequacy, as it were, it rises to the fore. We're more aware than ever that we just don't know what to say. I know I've been there personally. Some of you know I lost a sibling at the age of, he was 15, I was 22 when it happened. Probably the first time in my life I didn't know what to pray. Because what do I do? Like, it wasn't, it's not like he was sick, it was completely unexpected. Most recently, some of you know I lost a house in a house. Well, my family lost its house in a house fire. Another moment where, pff, what do you pray in a moment like that? I woke up one morning with a house. I went to bed that night with no home. What do you, and those are just two moments I can think of, big ones in my life where I've just been like, as it were, the air has been sucked out of me and I just don't know what to say. And I'm sure that if I went around the room, we could all testify to moments like that where we've all had to ask ourselves, Lord, what do I say in a moment like this? We don't always know what to pray for as we should. And if the story ended there, that would be a pitiful state of affairs. Uh, we, we would be in a bad place if that's where this ended. That would be bad news. But... Can I comfort you, beloved, that even though our weakness is real, there is something better. Better yet, there is someone who is on the case. 
Yes, we need to get realistic about our weakness in prayer, but let's not stop there. Yes, we need to get realistic about our weakness in prayer, but secondly, we need to graciously receive the Spirit's help in prayer. That's my second point this morning. We need to graciously receive the Spirit's help in prayer. You see, the focus of verse 26 is not so much on our weakness. Yes, our weakness is real, and that's why Paul mentions it. But the focus of the verse is on the fact that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So Paul mentions that the Spirit helps us, and then he goes on to define what that help looks like. Now, before we do, before we do, we, we, I want to take a moment, kind of take, take a step back. Because I think what we need to do is kind of define what prayer is. Kind of the ideal. Let's set up the ideal um, in preaching. I believe it was a guy called Joe Beakey who talked about the fact that in preaching and in basically in the Christian life in general, we want to do three things. We want to set up we want idealism, realism, and optimism, all three at once. The idealism, you kind of set up the ideal. Realism, okay, we all don't live there. That's the ideal, but we all don't live there. And then optimism, give the hope that the gospel gives. Well, for a moment, let me engage in a little bit of idealism for a minute. Let's talk about what prayer is supposed to look like. Because I think if we define what prayer is supposed to look like, it will help us to understand why we need help and what the help looks like. So before we get into the end of verse 26 and verse 27, let me take a moment and define what prayer actually is. Yes, we have weakness, but the Bible still commands us to pray, and the Bible does still say that our prayers are important. So let's talk about what prayer is exactly. As I was preparing this week, I was really helped by John Bunyan. Anyone in the room read Pilgrim's Progress before? Classic work. If you haven't read it, you should. Incredibly picturesque piece of English prose. It's regarded as one of the best texts in English by religious and irreligious people alike. Fun fact about that book, John Bunyan wrote the book for his blind daughter. That's why it's so picturesque and it's very simple in the names he gives. But John Bunyan didn't just write a few stories like that. He was also a prolific preacher and Bible teacher, and he wrote a book on prayer. Well, he wrote a couple of books, actually. One of those books was called A Discourse Touching or Concerning Prayer. It's also called Praying in the Spirit. It's still in print, actually. In the study guide this week, it's the one that's called Prayer by John Bunyan. The Banner of Truth reprinted it as a paperback. And in that book, I was really held by his definition of what prayer is. Again, we want to set up the ideal so that when we see how the Spirit helps us, we can see, okay, how is it the Spirit fills up what we're unable to do in prayer? So here's the ideal. Here's how Bunyan describes prayer, which I think is very helpful. John Bunyan says, and I think that quote should be there in your study guide. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God hath promised, or according to the word, for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Let me break that down. Number one, he says that true prayer is sincere. Well, we kind of saw that from the words of Jesus, didn't we? That true prayer is not about showing off. True prayer is not about showing I'm really super spiritual. No, true prayer 
It's sincere. It doesn't flow from trying to be something that you are not. He also says that true prayer is sensible. Now, he doesn't mean sensible in the way that we think of sensible. It's more carrying the idea of it's experiential. It, we sense things in prayer. That it, it speaks to our heart need. Thirdly, he says that it's an affectionate pouring out of the soul through Christ. Prayer is a heartfelt expression of what's going on in our souls towards God through the merits of Christ. Fourth, true prayer is by the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what we're talking about, so I'm not going to spend too much time here because we'll come back to that in just a moment. Five, true prayer is for such things as God has promised or according to the word. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians who will say, well, I really am big on prayer. I'm not big on knowing the Bible. You know, if you pray, God will tell, God will reveal the truth to you. Not according to my Bible. We dig into God's word so that we gain a greater picture of him, so that we know what his will is, and therefore we're able to go back to God and to pray rightly. Again, I I recommend this book to you because Banya makes a good point of saying that we can't go to God asking God for more than what God has offered. If we know what God has offered in his word, then we're going to pray rightly. We're not going to walk up to God and ask for things that God hasn't promised. So, true prayer is for such things as God has promised. Six, it's for the good of the church. As Bunyan puts it, this covers whatsoever tends or leads to either the honor of God, Christ's advancement, or his people's benefit. So it's not that we don't pray for personal needs. It's not that we don't pray for things that are important to us. But as we do so, we do so remembering that prayer is a corporate thing. It's for the body as well as us as individuals. Finally, he says that true prayer submits to the will of God. Prayer is not about, I've often said, prayer is not divine wish listing. I love Amazon. Amazon is great. You know, my favorite thing on Amazon is wish lists. I've got about like a hundred and something items on mine right now. Um, Wish listing is a good thing. But prayer is not divine wish listing. It's not as though we go up to God and God is the genie in the lamp. You know, if I rub God the right way, the genie comes out and gives me my three wishes. Always wondered about that, by the way. Like, why is it that no one ever says, when they get, okay, I give you three wishes. Can I get three more? Um, seems to me you just never run out. But either way, <laughs> prayer is not about manipulating God to meet your agenda. He's not the genie in the bottle that you have to rub the right way so that he comes out and gives you what you want. No, Prayer is an acknowledgement that our agenda will always be subject to God's agenda. Think about it. If prayer was about us and what we want, why would we pray? Just go do it. The fact that we pray acknowledges we recognize that there is somebody who is wiser than us, who is greater than us, and I need to know what he wants me to do. In other words, it is His will be done, not my will be done. So that's the ideal of prayer. That's how prayer should be when it's working. Okay, but Paul's just told us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Okay, so what about the moments when prayer doesn't work? 
What about the moments when our prayers don't look like this? When they're not sincere, they're not sensible, they're not affectionate, they're not by the strength and assistance of the Spirit, when they're not according to the Word, when they're not for the good of the church, when it doesn't submit to God's will because, again, you're caught up in that maelstrom, you're caught up in that vortex, you don't know what's happening. What does prayer look like when that's not happening? Well, Paul has the answer for that. Again at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself, end of verse 26, intercedes for us, my translation says, with unspoken, with inexpressible groanings. This is so rich. We want to take some time and think this through. In particular, I want to... Three things that kind of become apparent when you look at this. Point A there in the study guide. The, firstly, the Spirit himself is involved. Then you think, okay, Kofi, that's kind of obvious. It just said the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Well, don't miss that. One of the big misunderstandings, I'll be honest, when I was studying this, I had this misunderstanding until I started studying this a bit deeper. One of the big misunderstandings when we talk about this subject is that when he says that, okay, the Spirit, you see it there? He intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Well, people will often take this and say, well, yes, he does, but the unspoken groanings are things that we say. So in other words, it's kind of like you're praying. You're not really praying very well. So what ends up happening is the Spirit kind of does a divine ventriloquist. That you, know, you all know what a ventriloquist is, right? You know, the very sc- I find them very scary, to be honest. You know, the folks who can, you know, kind of take a puppet, their mouth, their mouth is moving somehow, but it looks like they're not, and they can basically throw their voice into this thing. We kind of, the way that sometimes people look at this is kind of like a divine ventriloquism. You can't pray, so then the spirit kind of jumps in and prays through you. In some traditions, this is, text is used as a proof text for the whole idea that the you know, the spirit kind of, we, we pray in our natural language. It doesn't quite work. It's kind of weak and ineffective. So then there's this other language you need to speak in, often called t- tongues, in quotes. It's not tongues, but tongues, allegedly. Well, you need that because that's the spirit praying through you with groanings that are too deep for words. They're inexpressible. But that's not what Paul says. He's actually quite emphatic, both in English and in the original language. It's the Spirit himself. I can bore you with some Greek grammar. It's the word auton. You put that in front of a a noun, and it basically makes it clear. They're the one doing this. Whatever this help is, whatever this intercession is, it's the Spirit who does it. Secondly, not only is the Spirit himself involved, he's the one doing it. Secondly, Paul's clear that the Spirit's help is a form of intercession. The Spirit's help is a form of intercession. In other words, the Spirit is the go-between when it comes to us and God. When we are unable to speak rightly, when we are unable to pray rightly, when we don't know what to say exactly, He speaks to God on our behalf. As we pray, as it were, we are not praying alone. The Spirit is praying for us. He, in a very real sense, is praying with and for us when we can't pray for ourselves. The Spirit himself is involved. 
the Spirit's help is a form of intercession. Thirdly, the Spirit does this in an unspoken way. So he says, Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken, with inexpressible groanings. Some of your translations say groanings too deep for words. I get what they mean when they say that. It's just not the most accurate translation. It's literally the word for spoken, that which is said, and then you've got an alpha negative slapped on. In other words, that which is not said. That, again, I don't understand all the metaphysics of it, and the Bible doesn't explain it, just as it happens. That there is such a connection, for lack of a better term, between the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's such a connection between them that the Spirit doesn't need to say a word, but the Father is keenly aware of our need in that moment. Oh, by the way, this intercession, the original language kind of carries the idea, it's ongoing. That he is always interceding. He goes on interceding. This isn't just a one-time, well, I'm kind of going through it. I need some help. No, no, no. This is a continual interceding in an unspoken way. Okay, well, if it's unspoken, how is he supposed to help us? Well, verse 27, he says, And he who searches our hearts, excuse me, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Don't sleep on the fact that Paul specifically talks about God searching our hearts here. Here's the logic. The Spirit, the Bible makes us to understand, dwells in our hearts. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So the Spirit lives in our hearts. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit has full, the Father, excuse me, has full access to our hearts, which means He also has access to the Spirit who's interceding in our hearts. I don't have to understand all how all of that works. I just thank God that His Spirit can do it. That when we feel our weakness, this is what praying in the Spirit truly is. I think Christians like to throw that phrase around, you know, we're supposed to pray in the Spirit. Well, we are supposed to pray in the Spirit, but I would argue this is what praying in the Spirit is. That praying in the Spirit is that part of prayer, as it were, where the Spirit is ministry when we are weak in our prayers. And that doesn't mean, okay, well, if I'm weak, well, why don't I not pray? I just let the Spirit do it. That's not the point. Paul, did you notice Paul doesn't say, don't pray? He doesn't say, well, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we should. So don't pray and just let the Spirit do it. You know, let go and let God. That's not what Paul says. Paul's point is not to discourage us from prayer. It's actually to encourage us to pray. That as we pray, yes, you're going to feel weak. You're going to feel inadequate. Your prayers are going to feel at times like they're just bouncing off the ceiling. But take heart that whatever our weakness in the place of prayer, God by his spirit doesn't promise to meet our need. No, he meets our need. Our communion with him is too important, too vital to just leave it in our own power and strength. God is not just going to sit there and say, well, I want to commune with you. I want to enjoy full fellowship with you, full participation in every area of your life. Oh, and I'm going to leave it to you to take care of. No, 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 no. That's why this 
idea of this, not idea, this person of the Holy Spirit is so vital. He's given, even in prayer, to help us so that we can be strengthened. One of my favorite songs is by a group called Sovereign Grace Music. It's called All Is Well. Second verse of that song is what makes that song one of my favorites. Second verse says, He feels our weakness, knows our need, and for our good he intercedes. And all is well because of God's great love. Through every failure, every fear, the Lord of comfort draws us near. And all is well because of God's great love. How brightly shines the love of the Father in our Savior Jesus Christ. With faithful hands, he fulfills every promise. He will never leave our side. I don't know about you, but if that doesn't spur you on to prayer and to the pursuit of the joy that can only be found in Jesus and in communion with him, I mean, if that doesn't do it, brothers and sisters, I'm out of ideas. I haven't got anything else. <laughs> I wish I did, but I don't. What a wonderful thing it is that as God's people, we have his spirit. And that one of the great and mysterious and amazing things that he does for us is that he, as it were, gives us help, real help, even when our own praying is ineffective. And that should encourage us to pray. So let's sit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the help of your spirit. We thank you that you don't leave us to figure out prayer by ourselves, but rather you give us the help, the assistance, the helping hand that we need. Father, deliver us from the at times unhelpful ways we think about prayer. The very law-driven way we think about prayer, to where prayer is this chore rather than this joyous and wonderful and gospel-driven experience, this gracious experience you give us so that we can commune with you. Father, we thank and give you praise for the Spirit's work. We thank him, give you praise that he is interceding for us even right now. And that he goes on interceding. And that by his power, we will make it to glory. Father, help us that we would always live life with an awareness of the spirit. Help us not to live in our own flesh. Help us not to live in our own strength. But to live and move and have our being in the strength that you supply. We ask these things in Jesus' name and faith.